I grew up, as many of you know, in a Christian home. I went to church regularly. I went to Sunday school. I went to vacation Bible school. I went to youth group. I went to church camp. I did all those things. And I made a profession of faith when I was young, but I also walked away from those things for a time when I was a teenager. And even after I believe I was truly converted after that, I still did things that I knew were completely contrary to how Christ wanted me to be living my life. And um, perhaps that explains why uh, for, for a time... Uh, I struggled very hard, very deeply, uh, with doubts about whether or not I was saved, whether or not I belonged to the Lord. Uh, I wanted to be sure that I was a Christian, uh, but I often lacked that assurance. Um, And I, I say all that so that you will understand why I said something very foolish one night while I was in college to a friend of mine. We were walking on campus somewhere, and I said to my friend, I said, um, you know, I wish that I had not grown up in a Christian home. And the reason why I said that is because I thought that if I had not grown up in a Christian home and had at some point heard the gospel and responded to it later in life, that I would have more assurance, a clearer understanding that I had gone from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, that I would have had a more dramatic conversion that I would have been more confident about. That's what I thought, anyway. That's why I said that. My friend, who I said that to, was not raised in a Christian home, and she very promptly rebuked me for saying that. And she reminded me that there were many privileges that I experienced growing up in a Christian home that she would have loved to have experienced, but didn't. There were many ways in which she was having to sort of catch up as a Christian in the things she was learning uh, to those of her friends who had been privileged to grow up in a Christian home and hear the Bible and go to Sunday school and all those kinds of things. So she helped me to realize Um, that there were a lot of advantages, right? To remember, there were a lot of um, privileges to growing up in a Christian home that uh, it would have been good. It was good for me to experience. It would have been good for her to experience. Now, I say all this to help you understand, believe it or not, what Paul begins to say in Romans chapter 3. So I invite you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 3. We've been making our way through Romans for the last... I don't know, two, three, four months now. And we've come to chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. And what you're going to see here at the beginning is how Paul speaks about the advantages that the Jews had as a result of being Jews and how Paul thinks about that, right? And what he wants them to think about that. So let me read for us chapter 3 of Romans, verses 1 through 8. And it says this, it says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. Now in this passage, Paul begins by asking a question. What advantage has the Jew? And the reason why he asked this question is because all throughout chapter 2, he has been stripping away from the Jews all their perceived advantages in one sense. But he wants to come back in chapter 3 and say, but there is an advantage to these things in another sense. So in chapter 2, for example, he told the Jews, look, you're not going to escape the judgment just because you've heard the law. Just because you have the law, just because you go to the synagogue, just because you know what Moses says and you know what the prophets say, you're not going to escape the judgment just because you've heard those things. And then he told them, you're not going to escape the judgment just because you're circumcised. Just because you're a member of the family of Abraham, just because you are a Jew by birth, that does not mean you are going to escape the judgment. These privileges and advantages that you are leaning on as though they are going to give you a pass on the day of judgment, they don't work that way. You are going to be judged according to your works just like the Gentiles are. And Paul even says there are some Gentiles out there who have believed in Christ who are now fulfilling the law in ways you unbelieving Jews can't and don't. And they're going to be received into the kingdom and and given eternal life right? because they have faith in Christ and, and, and their faith is working through love. And that love is the evidence of God's work in their life. And they're going to be welcomed and received into the kingdom. While many of you Jews who have rejected Christ and are leaning on your privileges, your hearing of the law, your circumcision, your descent from Abraham, you are going to be left outside the kingdom at the judgment. So by the time he gets to the end of chapter 2, he can imagine somebody saying, well, what is the point of being a Jew then? What what is the advantage of having belonged to the family of Abraham? Would I not have been better off being a Gentile, never having heard these things before? That's kind of what it sounds like, Paul. And so he comes back in chapter 3 and says, No, 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 no. If If you understand me to say there is no advantage to being a Jew, you've misunderstood what I've said. There is an advantage to being a Jew, right? Verse 2, he says it's much in every way. There's much advantage to being a Jew. So how can he at one time seem to be saying there's no advantage to being a Jew and then turn around and say there is an advantage? Well, here's, I think, what Paul is saying. He is saying there is no advantage to being a Jew at the judgment. When you get to the judgment day, all the privileges you have from being a Jew, your circumcision, your family connections, you're hearing the law, those things will be of no advantage to you at that time. The only difference between the Jews and the Gentiles at the day of judgment is the Jews go first, Paul says. There's no advantage at the judgment day. But there is an advantage to being a Jew before the judgment day. If you take advantage 
of the privileges you've been given now, then you will be prepared for the day of judgment. But if you lean on them as though they are your get-out-of-jail-free card on the day of judgment, you've misunderstood what those privileges are for. You've misunderstood what those advantages are meant to do. And here's why I say that. You say, well, where is that in the text? Here's why I say that. The first advantage he lists in verse 2, and it's the only one he lists here. He sort of digresses and then doesn't pick this idea back up until chapter 9. But here he says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, the Jews were entrusted with the scriptures, with the Old Testament. What was the Old Testament for? What was in there? Mainly, the Old Testament consisted of laws and promises. We know that the point of the law is to show us our sin and our need of a Savior. Right In chapter 3, later in verse 20, Paul says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The Jews thought that they you know, had a privilege before God, had a secure place before God on the day of judgment just because they had the law. Paul says, no, 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 no. You had an advantage in having the law, but that advantage was the law was there to show you that by your works you could never be right with God. The law was there to show you the sin that was in your heart and inside of every human heart so that you would come to recognize that you need a Savior, that you need forgiveness of sin, so that you need a sacrifice that can atone for your sin to make you right with God. The Jews didn't have that law to show them that. I mean, the the Gentiles didn't have that law to show them that. That's an advantage you have, not an advantage at the judgment, but an advantage before the judgment to help you prepare for that day by showing you your sin and your need of a Savior. The other main part of the Old Testament were the promises. From the very beginning of the Old Testament, God was promising His people that He was going to send a Savior to deal with their sin. A substitute to take their place. To bear the penalty that their sins deserved. One who would die for them. Even rise for them. Securing salvation for them. The the scripture was full of promises about this coming Messiah, about this coming Savior. Not just having heard those promises does not secure their salvation, but they did get to hear them. And they could respond to them in faith. That's what they were for. Not to show up on the day of judgment and say, I'm a Jew. I get a pass. I've heard all those promises. I know all those things. I can pass a test on them. Well... That's great, but that doesn't get you through the judgment. What matters here, what matters now is, did you believe those promises? When He came, when the promised Messiah showed up, did you trust Him? Did you listen to Him? Did you repent of your sin because you know of your sin by the law? And did you trust in the Messiah who's finally come in fulfillment of the promises? That's what matters at the judgment. That's the advantage the Jews had. The Gentiles didn't know a Messiah was coming. And they didn't have the law to show them their sin. The Jews had these things, but they misunderstood them, most of them. They thought that because they had those things, that they were on God's side, God was on their side, and they didn't have to worry about judgment or wrath or condemnation or any of those things. Paul says, no, 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 you've misunderstood. God gave you those privileges. God gave you those things so that you would turn from your sin and trust in the Messiah. 
Uh, similarly, there are advantages to growing up in a Christian family. There are advantages to receiving a Christian education. But they are advantages you receive to prepare you for the judgment, not advantages that get you through the judgment. No one's going to go to heaven because they were raised in a Christian family. No one's going to go to heaven because they went to a Christian school. We go to heaven, we we are welcomed into the kingdom, if we are, we are welcomed into the kingdom not because of those advantages, but because of what we did with those advantages, if we have them, or if not, how we responded later when we did finally hear the gospel. Right? The main advantage to growing up in a Christian home is you hear the Bible. You hear about Jesus. You hear the stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament. You hear about salvation by grace through faith. You don't have to learn those things later. They're, you're surrounded with them as you grow up. That is an advantage. That is a privilege. Right? But it only does you good if you believe those things, if you believe in that Savior, if you trust in Jesus, if you turn from your sin, right? That, that gospel, that good news that the Jews were prepared for that we now get to hear is simply this, that God, who's holy and righteous and just, He sent His Son into the world for sinners like you and me because He loved us. And Jesus died on the cross in humility as a sacrifice for our sin, in love, paying the penalty that our sins deserve, dying the death that we ought to die for our rebellion against God. And He paid the penalty so fully and so totally, and because He was divine and could not stay dead, God raised Him from the dead, death could not hold Him. He's raised, and right now he's seated at God's right hand where he's reigning over all things, and he's sent out his people into the world to declare the good news that anybody who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus receives all the blessings of God. Forgiveness, reconciliation, new life, the promise of eternal life with God, and uh, a new creation of righteousness and joy and peace. Getting to hear that, even right now, this morning, Getting to hear that is a privilege. There are people all over the world who never get to hear that message. We have missionaries working hard all around the world trying to tell people who've never heard that message about Jesus. Hearing that message is a privilege. But it's a privilege we must take advantage of. Because if we don't, all it has done is increased our accountability. We knew the gospel and we didn't respond to it. We grew up in a Christian family, and yet we turned from Christ. Right? We, we uh, sat in church week after week, year after year, decade after decade, and yet we were content with our sin. We never repented. We never trusted in Christ. All that does is, is raise your accountability, like the Jews. They're held accountable for not keeping the law. The Gentiles aren't because they didn't have the law. Right? So they are real, genuine privileges that are meant by God to work to our advantage, but we have to respond to them appropriately. Otherwise, they don't do us much good after all. Now, talking about that raises another question in Paul's mind in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? In other words, the Jews have all these advantages. God's given them all these privileges. They were intended to prepare them for the judgment, but many of them are not prepared. Many of them did not receive the Messiah that was promised. What do we say about that? What do we do with that? 
If some were unfaithful, he says, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, that's a, feels like a sort of loaded question, right? But if we put it um, sort of in, in modern terms a little bit, it's, it's a little bit easier to understand. How many of you have maybe either yourself experienced this or you've heard other people say something like this? Um, I just don't know that if I can trust God because all of the people I've run into who claim to belong to God are so untrustworthy. I've run into so many hypocrites. I've run into so many problems. I've run into so many unfaithful people in the church or unfaithful people who claim to be Christians. I'm just not sure I can trust in the faithfulness of God. That's the question Paul is raising there in verse 3. If the Jew, if many of the Jews didn't believe in the Messiah, then are we supposed to trust God's promises? And if so, why? Well, Paul says... Uh, their faithlessness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Right? The fact that many Jews were unfaithful and didn't believe the promises and didn't hearken to the law like they should have does not mean that God did not, will not keep those promises. He has and he will. He goes on to say in verse 4, let, let God be true though everyone were a liar. Right? If everyone else is false and untrustworthy and sinful... God is still true. God is still trustworthy. God is still faithful. And to support that statement, he brings in this quote from uh, Psalm 51 that we read earlier. Right? In verse 4, he says, As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, if you read Psalm 51 and you picked out a verse from Psalm 51 that you would want Paul to quote, this would probably not be the verse you would have picked out. Right? In fact, this is half of a verse. Half of verse 4. And in our reading of Psalm 51, this is probably not the verse that stood out to you, right? So why does he quote this verse, and what does it mean, right? Well, uh, the whole verse says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Paul, often when he quotes the, uh, the Old Testament, he expects us to know more than what he quoted. Right? He expects us to know the context of this statement. The statement is in, is, was made by David after his sin with Bathsheba, like we saw earlier. Nathan the prophet came to David and said to him, you are the man. You are guilty. You have taken this man's wife and then taken his life. You are guilty of sin. And David confessed and acknowledged that he was. And what David is saying here is he saying, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge that when, the, when your prophet, God, your spokesman, Nathan, came to me and called me to account and said that I was guilty, I'm acknowledging that he was right. So that people will know, God, that your word is true. Your word is trustworthy. That you be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I'm not going to pretend like I'm guiltless. And that, God, you were wrong to pronounce judgment on me. I confess my sin to acknowledge you are right. So, here's what Paul is doing with that. Paul is saying, like David, even if we all confess our sin, 
And all confess that we have lied. And all confess that we have been unfaithful to God. That does not nullify the faithfulness of God. That just supports the faithfulness of God. Because what God has said is that all of us are sinners. So our sin, Israel's sin, does not undermine God's faithfulness. It instead supports God's faithfulness. Now... That raises another question that Paul had probably encountered very often. And that question is, if our sin actually supports God's faithfulness, vindicates God's word, then should we be judged for that? Should we we be held accountable for that? I mean, it sounds like we're helping God in a way, right? If our sin shows God's truthfulness, our lie shows His faithfulness, then, then why should God judge us? Right? Why should we held, be held accountable to that? Well, Paul has apparently heard this objection many times. He, he states it three different ways. Right? He says it in verse 5. Right? If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And he says, by the way, I'm speaking in a human way. This is not my argument. I'm not saying this is true. I'm just, you know, this is what people think sometimes. And then he says in verse 7, If through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And then he says it again in verse 8, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? So people were saying, Paul, you are preaching a gospel that says Jesus died and rose for sinners and that if we repent of our sin and we trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, we're counted righteous in Christ, and God is glorified in saving us, so shouldn't we just keep sinning so that we can get more grace? Because God loves to give grace and God gets glory when He pours out grace and when He forgives sin. So shouldn't we just keep sinning so we'll get more grace and then God gets more glory? That sounds like what you're saying. And Paul says, that is not what I'm saying. That is a slander. That is a misrepresentation of my gospel. That's not how it works. When we are saved by grace, trusting in Christ, our sins are forgiven, we're made righteous. Our response to that is not... This is great. Now I can sin as much as I want. I can do evil and good will come. That's not how you respond when you genuinely believe the gospel. When you believe the gospel, you now want to walk in obedience to Christ. You now want to do the things that please God. You want to be faithful. You want to obey Him. You want to follow Him. So that's a misrepresentation of what Paul was teaching, of what Paul was saying. But he raises the question here, right, because he knows somebody is going to ask it. And here's what he says. This is a foolish way of speaking. This is a human, fleshly way of thinking. Right? Think about, think about it this way. What, what would you think if a criminal was convicted of a serious crime, and he said to the judge, Look, I know I'm guilty, you know I'm guilty, but I feel like I'm perfect performing a service to our community. Because every time I do something wrong, and I get convicted of doing wrong, I show that the laws that govern our community are good. And that our judges are good and righteous judges. And so I think I ought to be praised for that. I think I ought to be given good things for that. I think I'm doing a service. You would say, you are out of your mind. You are going to jail. And you deserve it. You don't deserve to be praised. You're not doing us a service. 
Right? That's the kind of argument that these people are making. Paul, you're saying if we sin, we show that God is faithful. So shouldn't we be praised for that instead of being judged for that? And he says, no. If that was true, he says, then how could God judge the world? And the scripture is clear from beginning to end that God is going to judge the world, that he must judge the world. That's how it works, right? These arguments are slanders against me. And he says, those who argue this way, their condemnation is just. Right? So, so here's what Paul is trying to get us to understand. Right? Our sin, though it can dishonor God, it cannot nullify God's faithfulness. No, no one's can. No one's sin should lead us to think, because that person acted that way, I, I can't trust God. Right? Because Israel acted that way, I, I don't think I can trust the God of Israel. Yes, you can. And you should. Right? When Israel sins, when you and I sin, we are actually proving God right. When he says all are under sin, there's no one who's righteous, no, not one. All have turned astray, right? We're proving God right. But that doesn't mean that we ought to be praised for that. If we know the law and we've heard the promises, if we've heard the gospel, that's good. But what we need more than anything is to respond to those truths. Respond to the law right, with conviction of sin, with awareness of our need of a Savior. And respond to the promises, respond to the gospel with faith in Christ. Crying out to Him saying, I am a sinner, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. That's Paul's whole point, right? In trying to take these uh, false ideas away from the Jews. Your circumcision is not going to save you. Hearing the law is going to save you. Going to church is not going to save you. Being baptized is not going to save you. Paul's point in taking all those things away is to say the only thing that can save you is Christ. The only thing, the only person you ought to be trusting in is Christ. Anything else you're leaning on, anything else you're trusting in is going to disappoint you on the day of judgment. It will not get you through. I want you to trust totally and only in Christ because in Him there is no condemnation. In Him there is no need to fear the judgment because in Him all who belong to Him are saved to the uttermost. Let's pray and give thanks to God for that.